Jeremiah chapter 13. I want to read a few verses, verses 15 through 19, and then I want to shift over to chapter 14 and read some from there as well. Jeremiah chapter 13 uh, will start us out. As you find that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now as we come to the scripture, I pray that you would help us, that you would be with us, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to believe, minds to understand. So please help us, I pray. May you be glorified in this word, even as it finds its fulfillment in our lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 15. Hear the word of God. Hear and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. But if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. Say to the king and and queen mother, take a lowly seat for your beautiful crown has come down from your head. The cities of the Negev are shut up with no one to open them. All Judah is taken into exile, wholly taken into exile. Then chapter 14 and verse 7. Until I want to read until chapter 15 and verse 1. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your name's sake, for our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. O you, hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us and we're called by your name. Do not leave us. Thus the Lord says concerning this people, they have loved to wander thus. They have not restrained their feet, therefore the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. The Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Then I said, oh, Lord, behold, the prophets say to them, uh, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to, to, to speak to them. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination. And the deceit of their own minds. Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name. Although I did not send them. And who say sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem. Victims of famine and sword. With none of you to bury them. Their their wives, their sons and their daughters. For I will pour out their evil upon them. You shall say to them this word. Let my eyes run down with tears night and day, and let let them not cease. For the virgin daughters of my people is shattered with a great wound and a very grievous blow. If I go into the field, behold those pierced by the sword. If I enter the city, behold the diseases of famine. For both prophet and priest ply their trade through the land and have no knowledge. 
Have you utterly rejected Judah? Does your soul loathe Zion? Why have you struck us down so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, in the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your namesake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord, our God? We set our hope in you, for you do all these things. And the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn towards this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. Now, Jeremiah had a very difficult calling. It was one that would bring him personally great grief. In fact, the Lord had told him in his calling that they would not only turn against God, that is the message that Jeremiah had, but they would also turn against the messenger, that is Jeremiah Jeremiah himself. And the message came because the people had sinned against God. They'd broken covenant with him. And God had said, if you follow me, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless you. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you and all of that. And they sinned against him. They turned against him. They rebelled against him. They wanted no part of that. And so the curses of the covenant came. And God was very patient, generation after generation after generation. But now his patience had run out. His patience had previously run out with the northern kingdom, now the southern kingdom, this tribe Judah and its neighboring tribe Benjamin. The judgment of God was coming and it was Jeremiah's call to bring that message, bring that message to them. It brought him great distress. We read last Sunday uh, Jeremiah's laments about his own personal response and the response of the people to him and they to him, how it would devastate him because those who came against him were his fellow countrymen those who came against him were his family his father his brothers those even with whom he had grown up in his own hometown they had turned against him and and even those against whom jeremiah brought this word of judgment they they came against him they they were they were prospering and jeremiah brought this word against them and so he wondered god how could you allow that i've been faithful to you i've been obedient to you why would this happen to me I understand that. God came to Jeremiah to comfort him. And his comfort was first this, Jeremiah, I told you to expect this, Jeremiah. I wasn't lying to you when I called you. I told you that this would be true and they would come against you. Now, you need to deal with that. You need to suck it up. You need to remember that you're running with men. Horses are coming. So you need to be strong. But don't worry, I'll be with you. Don't worry, I'll give you the words to say. Don't worry, don't fear them. I'll support you. I will keep you. I'll enable you to stand. I will vindicate this message and I will vindicate even you ultimately before them. So Jeremiah was to be strong. It's a good word for us. We, we, we live in a world not unlike Jeremiah's because every generation has been like Jeremiah's generation in some regard. We, we live among a people who do not want to hear the truth. We have a, a message as Jeremiah did. It's the message of the gospel contained in it. It's a message of our own sin. It's a message of the holiness of God. It's a message of his judgment against sin. It's a message of his grace. It's a message that Jeremiah even carried that, that God would restore and redeem those who would repent. But... but But we have to come to grips with this holy God. We have to come to grips with our own sin. We have to come to grips with our own weakness. We have to come to grips with our own inability. We have to come to grips with our own pride so that we can humble ourselves and come before God. 
and seek his forgiveness and his provision. People in Jeremiah's day didn't want to do that. There are people in our day who don't want to do that either. And so as the people in Jeremiah's day turned against him, we know that there are people who turn against us. So we ask the same question of us that we ask of Jeremiah. How did he maintain his strength? How did he maintain his faith? How did he maintain courage in the midst of that for us? How do we maintain faith? How do we maintain strength? How do we maintain courage in the midst of this? Well, in the same way, Jesus was honest with us. He told us that he was sending us as sheep among wolves. He told us that because they hated him, they would hate us as well. The apostles told us that we shouldn't be surprised when these things happen, when people turn against us, when we suffer for the name of Christ. We should know what to expect. Now, there are days which are very good and days and generations where perhaps uh, we are not being persecuted, but any generation, any one place in time, people who know Jesus are being persecuted for their faith. We know it in various ways in terms of rejection of our peers, rejection from family, rejection perhaps from employers. We know it in the, in the milieu in which we live, in our culture, our society. The lack of respect that our views receive in the public arena. Oh, they're just people of faith. Not only that, they're people of an exclusive faith. They're people who believe that Jesus is really the only way to be reconciled to God. That's we're marginalized and cast aside. Understand that. We know that. But we maintain faith because we expect that. We maintain faith because we know that Jesus is with us. We maintain faith because we know that this message will be vindicated. We know that this is truth. We know that a day will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that fuels us, that continues us on. Plus we know for those in whose heart God works and who repent and receive Jesus, that they will be saved for this message is true. So we continue on. But there's a second question as I read through these chapters, especially these chapters 11 through 20, which reveal to us not only the message that uh, Jeremiah was to pronounce on the people, but this interchange between Jeremiah and God and Jeremiah and the people. We get to see more of his heart in these chapters than in other places. And so as we do, there's a, the question comes like this. And that is, how is it that Jeremiah could, could have pronounced this, this message of the righteousness of God upon a people who were unrighteous without himself being self-righteous. How is it Jeremiah could come and bring a message of the judgment of God against the people who had sinned against God and who were under his judgment without himself becoming judgmental? When I speak of the righteousness of God, I'm speaking of this characteristic of God, this truth about God that says that He is righteous, that is, that He and His being and everything He thinks and everything that He does is right. Thus, He is righteous. He does no wrong ever in His thought and any of His actions and in anything throughout history. Nothing that God does is wrong. He is righteous. The difficulty comes that we are not, that we have rejected Him and thus His rightness, that which is right, and we ourselves then is un, are unrighteous. And so the message comes that God is righteous. We too must be righteous. We too must be right. We too must obey Him. We too must follow Him. 
And so you can picture Jeremiah. Here's this, this man who's speaking this message of the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, calling people to this righteousness and holiness, and they're rebelling against him. And why wouldn't someone come to Jeremiah and say, well, who made you? Are you any, really any different than, than us? And he could say, well, well, God's favor is upon me. You should be like me. See, the great danger of one who is self-righteous, who views themselves as having righteousness in and of themselves, is they turn up their noses against everyone else. Jesus showed us this in a parable that we know as this parable between the Pharisee, story about the Pharisee and this tax collector. You know, the Pharisees in the days of Jesus were those who understood themselves to be righteous before God because of their own righteousness, because of what they had done. And so Jesus tells this story. He said, he also told this parable, this is in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Right? And then the next expression, as Luke puts it, goes like this. He told them this parable of some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. As if we live self-righteously, if we think we've merited, and we think we're right with God because of our rightness, then everybody who falls short of that standard is not simply falling short of God's standard, but falling short of our standard. Because we're right and we've proven it. And so they view others who aren't quite as right, who aren't quite as good, with contempt, disdain. Jesus tells the story, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, remember tax collectors were disdained by everyone as thieves. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. In the King James Version, it adds this little expression, which is, is in some ancient manuscripts, says that he prayed thus to himself. This is a wonderful little expression. It's left out of the ESV, but, but it's a great little expression because he really wasn't praying to God. He was praying thus to himself. But he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, ex- extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so he was simply saying, God, I know that you, you accept me because of, of who I am, because of my inherent goodness. I am self-righteous. This tax collector, on the other hand, he looks at him with disdain. So you see, the great danger of having this message of the righteousness of God as people who carry that message is that it may well be that we forget how our righteousness has come to us. And we may think of ourselves as those who are self-righteous. In fact, a great danger, whether we want it to happen or not, a great danger simply because we speak as we speak, is that people might think that we're self-righteous. They they may confuse the issue, and frankly, we may give them enough evidence for that confusion in their own minds if, in fact, we're not careful. The question is, how do we keep from becoming the self, if you will, self-righteous? We can see this self-righteousness in the, in the elder brother in that story of the prodigal son. Remember that great story that Jesus told about this son who went to his father to get his inheritance early. Now, essentially, when this young man went to his father to get his inheritance from him, he was essentially saying, Dad, you're as good as dead to me. You're as good as dead to me. And so, so just give me all you are to me is this inheritance. You're nothing else. 
So he took the inheritance, as you remember, and he ran off and, and lived and squandered it and all of that. And finally, he comes to his senses, realizes what he has given up, not simply by way of living in his father's house, by way of being in relationship with his father, even as a servant, what he's given up and how his dad treats people. So he comes back, his father receives them. Now you remember the elder brother is all upset about that. And he's all upset about that because he views himself, that is the elder brother views himself as one who has earned his place by staying and serving his father. And what he's done is he's missed completely this relationship with his father. Because not only does he look at his, elder, as his younger brother with disdain, but he looks at his father with disdain. How could you do that? That's not right. I'm right. That doesn't meet my standard. And thus, I see you with disdain. Self-righteousness. So the question is, how can we be people? How can Jeremiah be a person? How can we be people who have the message of the righteousness of God without being perceived, not acting as if, not believing ourselves to be self-righteous? Secondly, how can we bring this message of the judgment of God without becoming, being judge, judgmental? And by judgmental, I don't mean that it's impossible for us to make assessments, to evaluate, to make judgments. We're called to make judgments. We need to make judgments. In the scripture, we're, we're, we're called to, to discern between false and true prophets, for, for instance. We have to evaluate teachers and teaching. As parents, we have to evaluate our kids. We have to help them. We have to make judgments. So this is right and this is wrong and, and help them move in the way that is right. So it's important for us to, to be able to assess, to make judgments politically and socially. We have to make judgments. Is cloning good? Is, uh, what about the war in Iraq? What, what about health care? What about these things? We have to make judgments about that. We have to think that through. This is right. This is wrong. This is the direction we ought to go. So it isn't like that at all. Judgmental means that we're holding people to our standard and condemning them when they don't meet it. John Stott puts this idea of being judgmental like this. He's speaking from this passage in Matthew, in, from a passage in Matthew chapter 7, you might remember in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Judge not, lest ye be judged. And, and he lays it out like this, Stott does. It's a rather lengthy quote, so hang in there with me. And it's rather British as well. So I caution you. He says, If then Jesus was neither abolishing law courts nor forbidding criticism, what did he mean by judge not? In a word, and this is his Britishness, in a word, censoriousness. When's the last time you used that in a sentence? All right? Well, think about it. Censoriousness, censor, censoriousness. The follower of Jesus is still a critic in the sense of using his powers of discernment, but not a judge in the sense of being censorious. Censoriousness is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It doesn't mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and, destruct, who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. That is, takes great glee when they fail. He puts the worst possible constructions on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. Worse than that... To be censorious is to set oneself up 
as a censor, and and so to claim the competence and authority to sit in judgment upon one's fellow men. But if I do this, I'm casting both myself and my fellows in the wrong role. Since when I have... Since when have they been my servants and responsible to me? And since when have I been their Lord and judge? As Paul wrote to the Romans, applying the truth of Matthew 7, 1 to their situation. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Paul also applied the same truth to himself when he found himself surrounded by hostile detractors. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The simple but vital point which Paul is making in these verses is that man is not God. No human being is qualified to be the judge of his fellow humans, for we cannot read each other's hearts or assess each other's motives. To be censorious is to presume arrogantly to anticipate the day of judgment, to usurp the prerogative of the divine judge, In fact, to try to play God. Remember Jesus in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7. He says this, Judge not, lest you you be not judged. And so he's, he's cautioning us here. He says, yes, we have to make evaluations and assessments and all of that. But be careful. That little expression, judge not that you may not be judged, tells us this. Remember you who judge, you will be judged. There is one who is above you. There is one who has the authority to judge you. And so as you're making these pronouncements, as you're judging others, remember you are not God. There is one who will hold you accountable. And then he says this, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, you can't even, you can't even obey your own standards. Isn't that really true? Oh, we're selective. You know, we have a list of things, and do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, and all that sort of thing. And we're pretty selective. We're, we're selective as we apply them to others versus as we apply them to ourselves. In fact, Jesus will come to that. And he says this, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice that log which is in your own eye? That's the way we do it. You see, we have this perception problem. When they fail, it's huge. When we fail, it's small to us. So we think we have a speck in our eye, we think they have a log in theirs, when the truth of the matter is we have a log in ours. And if we're really going to help them with their speck, which is pretty delicate surgery, we need to take the log out of our own eye. So Jesus says, here's the deal. When you assess, when you evaluate, when you think of right and wrong, especially in the lives of other people, make certain that you understand that you are not God, that he's judging you always. And he has the right and the authority to do that. And remember, the standard that you use... Could you live under that standard? And so here's what you're going to do. If you're going to be a help to another, and I want you to be a help to another, if you're going to be a help to another, make sure that you deal with you first. And then when you dealt, have dealt with you first, then you can help the other. 
That's the caution of Jesus. That's the teaching of Jesus concerning all of this. But still we realize that there's this great temptation for us. Let's face it. There's this great temptation for us, for us to be self-righteous, to be judgmental, especially since we know the righteousness of God and since we understand His judgment. Thus, the important question for Jeremiah, the important question for us is how do we keep, how do we keep from that? Notice in the life of Jeremiah, in chapter 13, he begins his prophetic word like, like this. He says to the people, he says, Hear and give ear, don't be proud. The Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness, before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And while you look for light, he turns, uh, for light, he turns it into gloom and makes it deep darkness. And he says, you know, before this judgment comes, repent, turn to God. Now that could sound judgmental. That could sound self-righteous. He's coming to them and says, you know, repent, turn to God. And, and you could hear them saying, well, who are you to say that to us? But notice, notice the heart of Jeremiah, verse 17. He says, but if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. Jeremiah speaks all of this weeping. He doesn't speak this in anger. He doesn't speak this with self-righteousness. He's not being judgmental at this point. His heart breaks for them. Because he knows what's to come. He knows what God has said concerning this judgment. He knows what's to come. And he also, in a sense, knows what's, what they're missing in terms of being in relationship with God. He knows what they're missing by breaking God's covenant. And he says, repent and turn from that. And he isn't saying that in a judgmental or self-righteous way. He's saying that with a tear in his eye. He's weeping in the midst of all of that. And, and that's the lesson to us. What breaks judgmentalism and self-righteousness that's a broken heart. It's a heart that breaks. It's a heart that breaks for the glory of God. It's a heart that breaks for sin. It's a heart that breaks over the sin of others. And what they're missing by not walking with God is that kind of identification with, with them. God obviously is complex. On the one hand, he says in Psalm 115 verse 3, that he does nothing that doesn't please him. He does all that pleases him. On the other hand, in Ezekiel in chapter 18, he says he doesn't take any delight in the death of the wicked. Now, there's ways to put all that together, but we haven't time. But just to show the complexity of God. But there's a sense in which even though God judges, there's a sense in which even though he brings about the death, the condemnation of the wicked, still, as we think about God, he says, I don't take great pleasure in that. And neither should we. It should cause us to weep when we think of those who've rejected God and who are under His, His judgment. I must tell you, I have a very, very difficult time in my own life sustaining thoughts about hell. If I begin to think about hell... I find it hard to sustain those thoughts. On the one hand, I, I realize that it's just. It's, it's a just punishment, hell is, for dishonoring God. Because God is so great that a small dishonor, even against Him, is a great crime, way bigger than we could ever imagine. And what could be suitable? What could be the right punishment for the crime of rejecting the love of the one who is supremely lovable. 
What could be the appropriate punishment for the crime of arrogance, of shunning, turning away from the wisdom of the one who is omniscient? What could be the appropriate punishment for turning away from the one who says, I love you with an everlasting love. I love you in such a way that I'll give my son for you. Trust him and, and, and you'll be saved. Well, what punishment could be suitable for one who would say no thank you to that? I am fine. What punishment could be suitable for one who simply steps upon the honor, the glory, the wisdom, the majesty, the law of God? I don't have a, a, a way of knowing that other than it being revealed. And God has said it's, it's this place. Hell, Jesus speaks of hell as a place of outer darkness, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of unquenchable fire of eternal punishment where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. He talks about it as eternal torment, as the fiery pit. All images to tell me that it's unimaginable. I don't think, as we contemplate the very fact, that those to whom we speak this message, if they reject it, will be there for all of eternity, whatever that means. I don't think we can say that with glee. I don't think we can say that with a sense of, of joy at all. There's just a sense of doom, a tear must be in at least our throat, at least our heart in that. I'm Richard Baxter, who's a preacher of the 17th century, who wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor that had nothing to do with reformed theology. It was about, all about reforming the clergy in those days. Lighting a fire under ministers to actually do the work of the ministry. And Baxter was one who was... Uh, uh, who I hate to read, quite frankly, because he was so good at it, at being a pastor. He, through the course of his ministry, did something called, he catechized the whole community in which he lived. That is, he went from house to house daily and spoke to everyone. You know, throughout the course of a year, he met every household, a course of a year, uh, and spoke to them of Christ and taught them the catechism. But this is well, how he spoke of his own preaching. He said, I marvel how I can preach slightly and coldly, how I can let men alone in their sins, and that I do not go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent, however they take it, and whatever pains troubles it should, or troubles it should cost me. I seldom come out of the pulpit, but my conscience smites me that I have been no more serious and fervent than I have. It accuses me not so much for want of human or ornaments or eloquence, not for letting fall an uncomely word, but my conscience asks me, how could you speak of life and death with such a heart? Shouldn't thou weep over such a people, and should not thy tears interpret thy words? Should not thou cry aloud and show them their transgressions and entreat them and beseech them as for life and death? And I think... How can we not weep? So for Jeremiah, that was a sense of his own heart that kept him from 
self-righteousness itself kept him from being judgmental. But not only that, he continued to intercede for this people. It was amazing. God continually told Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. I'm not going to change my mind. And Jeremiah couldn't help himself. He continued to pray for them. He continued to intercede for them. And finally, in verse 15, you get the sense that God says, listen, Jeremiah, I appreciate that. But even if you were Moses or Samuel, I wouldn't hear you. And you get the sense that, okay, Jeremiah, I appreciate you, but they're too greater than you, and I wouldn't even listen to them. So stop it. Go speak to them, not to me. But notice how he intercedes, how Jeremiah does in chapter 14, verse 7. He says this, Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Lord, for your namesake, for our, for our backsliding are many. We have sinned against you. O you hope of Israel, it's Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Don't leave us. Basically what Jeremiah is, is pleading with God, as the other prophets had, and as, as we have in the course of our lives. We say, God, what's going on here? We belong to you. You're our God. Come, don't, don't be like a stranger to us. Don't be like a stranger in the land. Like, you don't know what's going on here. We're your people. You're our God. Help us. But what's, what's helpful here is that Jeremiah uses these plural pronouns. He doesn't say they and you and them. He says us, our we, he gets it, he understands. I would imagine if somebody would come to Jeremiah in his day and say, Jeremiah, how is it that you can have the favor of God? How is it that you can stand to be the true prophet when all the others are false prophets? How can you be the one to bring us this message of righteousness and, and judgment? Uh, why, why do you stand in that position? And I, I think Jeremiah would just shake his head and said, because God called me. I think he would say, it really wasn't my deal. It was... His, in fact, God begins his whole relationship with Jeremiah like that in chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It's as if God says to Jeremiah, you didn't have a real choice in this. I was the one who did this. Even before you were born, I did this. I consecrated you. And as you were born, this became true for you because it was my plan for you. And we think in terms of our own lives, what keeps us from this sense of self-righteousness, this judgmentalism? Well, we know that our salvation is indeed a work of God. It's not something that we deserve. It's not something that comes from our own merit. In 1 Corinthians in chapter Six, the apostle writes this, verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The answer is yes, okay, we know that. Then the question is, well then, how do you think you're going to inherit the kingdom of God? If the unrighteous don't, and if we're, as Jeremiah would put it, unrighteous, how can we inherit the kingdom of God? And, and then the apostle says, do not be deceived Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. 
It isn't as if we can say, well, those sexually immoral people won't inherit the kingdom of God. Those swindlers won't inherit the kingdom of God. Those thieves won't inherit the kingdom of God. Those revilers, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. Because if that were the case, then none of us would inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. So how do any of us expect to inherit the kingdom of God? He says, but you were washed. Oh. You were sanctified that is set apart. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Oh. All right. And then, of course, what I read this morning in our call to worship out of Ephesians in in chapter 1. It's just a passage that puts us on our heels. It, it humbles us utterly, even as we think of our own lives. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. All right? I appreciate that. Now, how have I come to be the recipient of those blessings? He said, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And we think, just like Jeremiah. I understand the mystery of all of this, but we mustn't miss its point. Its point is to humble us. Its point is to take every bit of self-boasting out of us. Its point is to cause us in no way to be self-righteous. In no way can we be judgmental. In no way can we look at any other, I don't care who that any other is, with disdain and contempt. Because we know that if it weren't for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he would look at us with disdain and contempt and condemn us. And he would be right. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his righteousness which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Chapter 2, and you, Paul says, chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, he includes himself, and the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and whereby nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, there it is. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we to put ourselves above anyone else? How can't we? And then he says, the only difference is but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. It's a free gift. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this that is everything, your salvation, your faith and all that goes in it. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Titus in chapter 3. Same point. 
Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And you can say, you don't have been that bad. <laughs> well, trust me, it's in you. Be grateful. God got you perhaps before you did all that. But if he hadn't, trust me, you would and I would too. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified, justified by his grace, we may become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What keeps us? from being judgmental even as we speak the judgment of God. What keeps us from being self-righteous even though we speak of the righteousness of God is the gospel. There is no way I believe a human being can logically look at the cross of Jesus and be self-righteous and be judgmental. Most especially those of us who believe it, most especially of us who come and see this table, even as it reveals all of that to us. Because the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my, my body which is given for you. Why? Why did Jesus die? Why for us? Because of our sin. Because we deserve to be condemned. Because of our unrighteousness. The same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes What are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming that we're just like everybody else. We're proclaiming that we're sinners. We're proclaiming that the best we can do on our own, if our own righteousness is measured, the best that we can do is to receive the condemnation of God to be placed in this place called hell for all eternity. It seems to me that once we've admitted that, it's hard to be too uppity. It's hard to place ourselves above anybody else. We really mustn't look upon anybody else with disdain or contempt. And we proclaim this death of the Lord to say that all who come to Him, all who receive Him, all who trust in Him, will be given His righteousness. Not their own, but His Righteousness, thus we can stand before God, will be forgiven their sins, thus can live in the very presence of God. And we know that, because the Bible teaches it, we know that because it is true for us. We know it's truth in our own lives. It's this gospel, it's this cross that breaks our pride, that ex- executes our own self righteousness we may receive his righteousness thus. You cannot be judgmental. 
must watch ourselves. Can't be self-righteous. We must watch how we think, how we speak of others. We must watch how we present this message to them. So they know it isn't us. Our goodness, our merit, it's Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us. And we would be a humble people. We'd be a meek people. We'd be a people who know that they're poor in spirit. They mourn over their own sin and the sin of others as well. And desire, therefore, to be peacemakers, to be people who bring peace between God and people. Through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray, Father, if there's any bit of disdain in us towards others because of their lives, that we would repent and we'd see without your hand upon us. We could sin in every way. To pray that we would be a people, gospel-centered people who speak this truth of Christ with tears. Speak this truth of Christ, the great identification with sinners. People would hear it not from a judgmental people, not from a self-righteous people, but people would hear this gospel through us, this church, by knowing we desire with all of our hearts for them to know Christ and to walk with him. For God's glory and their great benefit. So Father, be with us. I pray even now that you would take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we could fellowship with Jesus right here to know that he's as close to us as this bread and juice is and that even as he is that he died for us and that we would be both humbled and delighted in his presence. Do that work, I pray, in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you this table is not the table of grace. Evangelical Presbyterian Church is the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in God's sovereign mercy, who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners who desire to live humbly following him, pleasing him. That's true for you. I invite you to come these two. Sections can come down this aisle to my left, these two down this aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you do, acknowledge the fact that God has had mercy on you, the sinner. Please come.
Pray with me, Father, we're a needy people. We pray that you would continue to meet our needs. We never cease to need your righteousness. We never cease to need your forgiveness. We never cease to need your strength. We never cease to need your wisdom. We never cease to need your mercy. We never cease to need your grace. So, Father, I pray as such people that we would never cease to be merciful, that we'd never cease to be kind, that we would never cease to be compassionate, that we would never cease to be forgiving. And so, Father, I pray that we would be a people after your own heart. God, you've been gracious to us. We give you thanks 
This week for the birth of Margot May Clements, we're grateful. We pray that you would bring healing to Olivia Fox, to Naomi Nelson, to our dear brother Norm Holmescog, for Megan Boyd. We give you thanks for being with Janet Yeo and her surgery this week. We pray too that you would be with Greg Huff and his family as they grieve the loss of his father. Pray for your help and strength, Gloria Follett, as she ministers in Kenya. We pray for Vince and Julie as they come back from Ethiopia with their son. Father, you've been gracious to us. You've been kind to us. We continue to seek you and to pour out our lives to you, for you are faithful. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hallelujah.